Hi, everybody. We're back with The Gods Will Not Save You, The Wire Revisited, and I'm Willie Romano Pugh. Hello again. This is Jakob, and welcome back to the podcast about the hit HBO show, The Wire, where we're going to be doing a deep read of season three, Willie's favorite season. It might, maybe, it might be, I don't know. Like season three is definitely the one that impacted me the most when I first watched it. But with like all the stuff that's happened throughout history since my first watch, I don't know. We'll we'll see. It's all fantastic. It's all great. Uh, just some housekeeping uh, right off the bat before we get started. Uh, you've all been very wonderful to us uh, in the past. We took a little break, but now we're back. But Please remember us if you uh, have any kindness in your hearts, if you want to donate to us at anchor.fm slash the gods will not save you slash support. Give us five stars on iTunes. Leave us a nice review. All that good stuff. You guys know what to do. Yeah, exactly. We're really excited to be back here with you. Thanks, Willie, for laying it out. Yeah. Uh, for all. So. But let's let's start getting into it. Uh, season three, we see the start of a... Uh, a new case that we saw germinate at the end of season two, where uh, the major crimes unit is going to go after Stringer Bell. We see some stuff going on in the political spectrum that we haven't really been privy to before. So uh, let's talk about, you know, the themes of reform that are introduced uh, in this season. Yeah, I mean, that's essentially... The way, you know, season three came together discussing politics, kind of an interesting little background story there, kind of a a writer's meeting or retreat where uh, (laughs) a pretty prominent political, you know, uh, journalist, veteran of the Baltimore Sun, happened to also be in town, I think, outside of New York City, north of north of the city, Bill Zorzi Jr. He's already appeared. That you pointed out so stupid in season <laughs> one, episode three, and it kind of became a huge, uh, huge centerpiece or providing a lot of the really authentic insight and background to uh, to this to this season yeah. on, his, on his experience, um, because we know that the other creators and, <laughs> and writers on the show are really, really into really into politics. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Ed Burns and George Pelicanos uh, <laughs> joked around saying that the scene with Irvin Burrell and Tommy Carchetti in the diner after the city council meeting was all that they wanted to say about politics throughout the show. Uh, they were not really interested yep. in whatsoever. So Thank God we had some, you know, we have a, a chorus of voices to kind of chime in and build out this story of a of a city. We also have uh, uh, Richard Price, respected novelist who had wrote Clockers, which came out around the same time as Homicide, and who had a cameo in season two as uh, the prison tutor or English teacher, I guess. Uh, join the writing staff, Dennis Lehane, you know, he wrote Mystic River and all kinds of uh, crime novels, just really broadening the scope, um, reinforcing the idea from the beginning that David Simon and Ed Burns wanted to have a novelistic approach to storytelling and television that was kind of unheard of at the time. So this is where it starts. Uh, 
broadening the horizons behind beyond a, a typical writer's room. White guy dream team going on there. <laughs> unfortunately, no Walter Mosley uh, didn't, didn't want to join. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Uh, but Bill Zorzi also, Bill Zorzi Jr., right? That's what we should call him. Also co-wrote or co-created, I should say, Show Me a Hero, further uh, ah. demonstrating his political know-how and whatnot. It's funny you mentioned that. That's just where I was headed. I, I mean... Could have been the back and forth we had about uh, you uh, rehashing and or watching the uh, entirety of David Simon and Ed Burns uh, projects <laughs> in our in our break. Um, maybe I don't. Know. I, yeah. Also, I was just going to say that uh, David Simon apparently called up Bill Zorzi Jr. in 2001 and said, "You have to read the book that Show Me a Hero," which was written in the 80s, right? It's based like. Lisa Belkin, I think. Right, yeah. Obviously, my uh, my lack of words here shows how, <laughs> how, how how tuned in I am with Show Me Hero. It's been a, it's been a while. Uh, I don't I don't think I was uh, gluten free when I was watching it, so I, I don't I don't remember too much of it. Well, but my point being, Willie, I'm gonna get there. I'm gonna get there. He he said, Bill, you got to read this book or, you know, I don't know if he was calling him Uncle Bill back then. He was an assistant city desk editor and he's at the Baltimore Sun. And then he totally forgot about it, got a call back three weeks later and was and David Simon had asked him again. Um, and he said he had forgotten about it and, you know, he just forgot about it. And he said, you better you better effing read it because, you know, we're going to be working on the project. And it kind of reminds me of having to continuously bother you about watching this documentary called Charm City throughout this entire time off. So, hey, you know what? I finally watched it. I finally made good on it. And uh, yeah, it was pretty great. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And it has to do with a lot of maybe current uh, politics, which will tie in. Right. Exactly. Another great uh, thing about Show Me a Hero or observation that I had is that the story the way the story unfolds is almost kind of like a Tommy Carcetti storyline in reverse because it's about mm-hmm. someone uh who was on the Yonkers City Council who got elected by kind of saying or advocating for some uh racist positions about public housing and then once he actually got uh into the mayor seat he kind of um got in touch with his conscience and realized the right thing to do um, was to advocate for uh, low-income housing uh, in these neighborhoods. And it kind of undid him. Whereas in, you know, spoiler ahead for future episodes in season three, but Carcetti campaigns as a progressive um, who promises to lower crime in Baltimore and reallocate funding to schools and all this stuff. And then, governs um you know from a more corporate position or centric like you know just kind of going back on a lot of his promises um which elevates him to the governor's office eventually yeah yeah and definitely not something we would we would then go on and see play out in real life uh the <laughs> 2000s and so forth but that's a whole nother <laughs> conversation or not yeah um i'm sure we'll get into all oh yeah great points um yeah so yeah it's been good though it's it's been good uh doing some r and d yeah uh, 
is that a, is that a term research research and development yeah that's uh, it that's a good good job you did that's there it. that's yeah. it good acronym but yeah i've done even better job i did on all the uh you know tech uh tutorials and and so <laughs> forth to improve uh the quality of <laughs> of uh you know of our show here um don't, didn't spend time watching things like boardwalk empire uh, <laughs> yeah but even if i did there's politics involved there but yeah. let's just say it's good to get back to the wire you know yeah it's like definitely. no place like home in a way you know what i mean yeah, you definitely know that. Um, you, I definitely realized I was missing out on this when I was like, you know, I'm making my way through the whole Simon canon. And after I finished Generation Kill, I was like, oh, man, it's, you know, really great. But it, this is the most depressing thing I've ever seen. And then, you know, when I watch, uh, when I start watching season three of The Wire, I was like, okay, this is a little less depressing and it's only an allegory for the Iraq war. It's not putting me in the actual position of people who are fighting it. So, yeah. Anyway. um, It's all one war or another. Exactly. As uh, we figured out, and as many people have stated before, the opening scene of each season kind of lays bare the themes that are going to be explored throughout the season. Um, and you have it right here. Uh, Mayor Clarence Royce is talking about how reform is not just a buzzword with his administration. And by, you know, imploding these project towers, they're going to make an effort to clean up the crime in the city and get rid of the drugs and all that and build new moderate to low income housing in its place. You know, this sounds like all good things, but there is a stark contrast with uh, the dialogue that's going on with Putin Bodhi, where Putin is talking about, um, you know, he has memories of these homes and he's going to be sad. And then Bodhi talks about how, like, this was just kind of a hub for him to catch venereal disease after venereal disease. And he keeps going into a clinic with uh, his dick looking like a fried chicken wing, uh, which is all very funny, but it also kind of, uh, you know... (laughs) gets to the larger metaphor of uh, people, you know, who keep voting for the same politicians or keep doing the same things, but uh, expecting different outcomes. And even, you know, in the short cold open with all the promise and big talk of, you know, a new day ahead, once they implode the, the towers, all the dust, debris and smoke just quickly makes its way out into the neighborhoods and causes people to choke and cough you know there's a lot of asthmatic people as we learn uh in the city so this is kind of only making the problem worse like uh Bodhi says also you know people they don't they don't care about people but Poot Poot is you know he's uh he's going through it but also interesting that once upon a time it could have been said that by some that the building of these high-rise projects was also a type of reform as well. I mean, it's it's a double-edged sword because they were built largely to segregate the black populations that were inhabiting other areas, and then a part, you know, fell victim to slum clearance where they were essentially pushed into even more segregated high-rise projects like Lexington Terrace and the Murphy Homes. So, 
Um, but then on the other hand, they'd say, oh, well, look, you have now reliable electricity and heating and so forth. So it's kind of a reform. So I don't know if that ties in at all, um, because now they're being knocked down for more reform in some ways. When it, but it's you know, very is really as it seems. Right. <laughs> It's very, very like fucked up, like circle of life, uh, you know, everything, all the vacuums are going to be filled somewhere or another uh, with good and bad consequences or outcomes, which is kind of like a theme that runs prevalent through all out, throughout all of Simon and Burns's storytelling. <laughs> mixed with mixed response. Uh, you know, a lot of people were excited and and real through real Baltimore also to have a chance to become maybe homeowners in these new affordable non-high rise units. So, but, uh, like you said, it's, uh, it's, uh, not a fine line. It's a lot of gray area. It's cosmetic reform. Um, there you go. <laughs> um, and speaking of reform, another person that is trying to kind of embrace the idea of systemic change, uh, is Stringer Bell, who uh, we have Stringer conducting a meeting uh, with a lot of people, and we see him trying to rationalize an irrational industry with Adam Smith-style capitalism. We see uh, Shamrock reading Robert's Rules of Order, which is kind of like America's guide to parliamentary procedure in a lot of different settings. Yeah, we see him um, kind of trying to implement his ideas into the heads that uh, we need to be smarter about this. We don't need to be so concerned with territory if our product is really good. Um, and it's a little bit of a departure from things we've seen Stringer Bell talk about in the past, especially in season one, when he tells D'Angelo people buy heroin no matter what, you know, even if it's stepped on or cut with other low-grade stuff. And foreshadowing or taking into account that the the loss of prime territory um which of course was franklin terrace you know will now result in maybe a, a power vacuum in some regards even if Bodie uh maybe was putting too much stock into the into the towers with stringer reminding him that they only really you know they were ceding territory uh to gain stronger product so it might not be as detrimental as you know as it as it might seem um also reminding Bodie that what he had done previously as far as you know being a soldier and fighting over what he might consider stringer might consider meaningless territory resulting in innocent life being taken for for no reason at all really I think I think uh in all in in all honesty uh if this was a real situation I would most likely uh be most more like Poot um just making some asinine comment and having the leader <laughs> smack smack the microphone off of the stand to chastise me pretty pretty great comedic yeah. moment that we got there I always love that scene yeah it's coming one day one of us sooner or later is just gonna you know be so incensed by some by some like as you mentioned asinine comment and just smack our mic off of its mic stand so and you yeah. know we have extremely official uh you know setups i'm definitely not utilizing a uh a tv dinner tray to to anchor hey, the mic. i mean yeah 
Neither am I. Wink, wink. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we also have the, I mean, we have the first appearance of Marlo Stanfield, mm -hmm. who shows up uh, right as Johnny and Bubs kind of let their shopping cart full of metal go astray and hit a random SUV. Um, he and some of Marlo's henchmen kind of point a gun at Johnny's face and threaten to kill him. We don't really understand the implications of uh, Marlo Stanfield's position as of yet, but just the fact that he so callously uh, tells them to go through with it or not because he has places to be kind of hints at the notion that there could be a power struggle coming up and that there might be like some sort of battle with a new, like, you know, an oncoming potential regime change with the old school and new school of, of drug dealers in certain territories of Baltimore, further illustrating like the the allegorical Iraq war connections. But that I'm, I'm getting a little ahead of myself there. Mm -hmm. Keep going. No, <laughs> That's all I got. Uh, you can just tell, yeah, the old school and new school. Maybe we've talked about that in the past or David Simon and Ed Burns were into the Kind of portraying that where Stringer's talking about withholding from needless violence and Marlowe's just seems indifferent to potential, right. you know, bloodshed and a murder taking place right outside where he, <laughs> you know, might be sleeping or where he's doing business. He's just like, sure, whatever. Do it or don't. Uh, you know, I don't care. It's broad daylight. Uh who cares? So definitely right. eerie. Um, and speaking of old school versus new school, uh, we, we get taken back to Jessup where we are first introduced to Cuddy, one of my favorite characters, one of my favorite new characters. Uh, incredible journey that he takes through here and one of the rare like optimistic stories that's portrayed on this show. Um, but we see him on one of his last days incarcerated talking to Avon and Weebay on the baseball field. By the way, Avon's little uh, waltz through the mm -hmm. baseball field where he just like makes everyone uh you know stop in their tracks and like completely halt the game because they have to respect that you know the boss is walking through it sends chills down my spine every time such a great like little moment to convey how still powerfully scary this guy is you know you have some interesting background here on historical context of the names that uh Weebay brings up they were uh Maybe doubting, well, not not Weebay, but uh, was it Avon was doubting whether, yeah, he says the joint, joint might have broken. broken yeah. yeah, I just, I don't know. There was a alleged dealer named Elijah Davis. I don't know. It's just probably coincidence, but yeah, he maybe had some cops on his payroll. One of them could have been Major Watkins, who was uh, Roger Nolan from uh, Homicide, which you're getting mm -hmm. into. Right. His boss, who was like caught up in some corruption, so I don't. I I might I might have more in further episodes, future episodes on Elijah Davis, but all right, yeah, who knows? Cool. They pull a lot of names, obviously. So sometimes though, it's not that simple as like the exact name, but uh, yeah, Cuddy's not broken though, as we learn. He's just you know he's he's even kind of a little dismisses of the you do two days he's kind of looking at them like uh i've been here 14 years so. <laughs> yeah seriously that's a he shuts them down he shuts talk of that down real quick because his delivery you're talking about 
his delivery is so earnest and like impactful. Like he doesn't really have to say much to like get them caught in their own bullshit saying, but exactly, you know, I'm glad a lot of things I forget about the show, but I, that, that was definitely refreshing because every time I'd hear them say that, I just think, wow, two days, really? That's, that's okay. So anyway, um, once he gets back, uh, into society, into normal life, he seems, feels like a stranger in his own town. He sees boarded up row houses everywhere. Um, the package that he gets, um, connected with via Avon's crew. He has a hard time with it and encounters some real problems with like the new school way of doing things when he encounters a character named Fruit. I mean, I know neither of us would ever be in the situation. I mean, you never know, but like probably not going to become a a drug dealer, you know, at this stage of my life. But, you know, if you got, if you were in that situation, would you essentially fruit is set up like on the corner across the street from his Mima's house. So would you just, would you just like uh, put more drugs right, right into your own street? You know, well, it's a, I, I, there were some street corners like Poppleton and Fayette, which like the Fayette strip is, you know, something that's mentioned where, you know, they're, they're expanding their territory or that's where the major conflicts going to transpire in this season. It seems and maybe maybe i'm wrong but i don't know i don't know it just it seemed like he was walking but i know maybe Cuddy, i mean he's really fit so maybe he just walks pretty fast you know there, there's like there's a store in the area around his house or maybe this is different but that store isn't anywhere near poppleton and fayette so i don't know if that was you know i know i've been a little harsh sometimes on the, <laughs> on the shooting locations not really taking into account that you know, okay, yeah, they're filming multiple scenes. They don't necessarily need to drive across the entire city to just film one corner, you know, of a drug deal or something. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's a just it's an it's a pretty bizarre take. I'm I'm trying to you know it's, uh, maybe ruffle up here, but yeah, to your point, you know, fruits just a real jerk and acts super brand new and right threatens to basically. I mean. It seems, unfortunately, you know, getting a gun pulled out on you in, in, in that area is not necessarily a rarity, especially if, you know, drugs are involved. But, um, you know, he threatens to kill him more or less. Even right. Though Cuddy's been around the block, uh, literally, figuratively, whatever. He, uh, you know, he still seems a bit shaken, especially because the code is completely different, like you said. Uh yeah. There's no number, there's no case number or whatever he had asked for almost as a receipt of the G pack getting taken by the cops as fruit claims. So he he just he knows he's dealing with an entirely different uh you know, yeah. generation. Culture shock. Um but as we mm-hmm. as we see throughout this season, um Cuddy is the one example where it's like a silver lining where the reform is actually going to work out in his favor because he goes through a process of personal reform where he learns how to channel certain uh, passions into something positive. So it's a really great storyline to connect with. Um, So, and it's good to latch onto something like that. I don't know if this will be a proper transition, but go for it. 
as as Cuddy is, you know, backing out of the alley where he gets the gun pulled on him, doesn't doesn't uh, Colvin essentially yeah. pass by in that moment? Exactly. Uh, there's kind of a interweaving of the plot lines we got going on, and he embodies that. Uh, you know, at least the attempt uh, right. to to make a change in in a system that he sees as uh, you know a dead end. Um, right. Well, he's kind of like cruising around the neighborhood where he happens to see Cuddy walk by and we're kind of like really in his mindset mindset where he's just looking at the streets he's patrolled and worked for years and years and sees that things haven't really gone anywhere in a positive direction and he's feeling kind of disillusioned and depressed with it all. Um, I don't want to keep doing the, well, I'd never be in this position, but just for the sake of the art, I guess. Uh, I mean, driving around your own district as a major, I, like, how, how anxiety-inducing would that be, thinking that, you know, man, I might, I'm going to see something crazy, potentially. I don't want to necessarily get involved at this hour of the night, or but I guess that's just what he needed to do. Um, granted, it was you know, wrapping up things that he had observed uh, throughout you know, this episode as far as the work of his DU units led by Carver and Herc, which we kind of see at the Mm -hmm. beginning of the episode as well, a complete overreaction to chasing down some hoppers who pretty much outsmart them from the jump. You know, and we also saw this in uh, Bunny's brief uh, cameo appearance in season two, where he's just kind of lamenting the fact that like, okay, we're going to patrol this area for a while because a kid was killed here and things are going to go quiet for a little while. But then what, like things are just going to return to normal and it's just going to keep going on and on like this. And we see the power vacuum uh, that was uh, created at the end of season one easily be filled up so many times over so he's really he's like at the end of his career he's kind of grappling with like an existential crisis on like what can he do to make a a lasting impact and and potentially like curb some of the endless violence that that he's seen throughout his career talking about maybe witnessing violence or the aftermath as reform-minded as bunny is and as you know likable a character he is and Robert Wisdom being a fantastic actor, one who even provided uh, you with the epic uh, cameo shout out on your birthday. <laughs> oh, that was great, yeah. Uh, is, is he already kind of glossing over uh, police brutality that uh, that kid suffered at the hands of uh, Herc and uh, Carver? I mean, they're even admitting that they beat him down the Western District way and I don't know if I'm jumping ahead, but I can't remember. I mean, I'll, we're obviously rewatching this for a reason, uh, but I don't, you know, does his uh, future action to kind of cast a wide net of reform maybe, uh, you know, make up for not taking this uh, instance into account and following up on uh, an obvious infraction by his police unit? That's a really good point. I like, I hadn't given as much thought to that as you had, but I think it's important to note that like he does recognize that it's a problem and he's concerned with them kind of going over a kill on that thing. But he's so ingrained uh, in the culture by then that he doesn't really know, not 
Like he doesn't he doesn't recognize that action needs to be taken or it would seem like out of character or uncouth to like take action on that. Because I know later on, like down the line, uh, when Carver is given a bit more authority and he takes disciplinary action towards Calicio, that it's like a huge big to do within the department um so we kind of see the ramifications of of uh disciplinary action even when it's totally warranted so yeah and you know different times obviously right almost 20 years ago uh pretty much you know you run from the cops you're gonna get beaten up regardless was still sadly the culture uh you know uh and still happens obviously but maybe a change coming and we'll talk more about uh you know some of the ways baltimore might be reforming its uh its police oversight and yeah. so forth yeah you know bunny's attitude um yeah. kind of getting set up for the comstat you know saying obviously crime is you know a huge issue like i said we're going to talk about burrell right. here but uh he asked Rawls, how can we hide the bodies? And I'll check of all people's like, wow, that's a good burn. You know, you know yeah. told him, what got into you, man? Like, hey, yeah. what? and he says, what can they do to me? You know, I got, I'm six months from major's pension. So. Yeah. Unfortunately, we'll find out what they can do to him. People, you know, Rawls and Burrell are kind of hammering their message home. Uh, more thoroughly once Burrell talks with the mayor and is basically pressured into massaging or juking the statistics into bringing the homicide rate by the end of the year to 275 to keep it. And that's like, they want to keep it as low as 275. So they're basically uh, kind of trying to get the uh, (laughs) different majors to kind of uh, be dishonest about their own police work and just get some good news on paper so that they will have to avoid any trouble from a lot of political higher ups, (laughs) which in turn kind of like sets up (laughs) Bunny's whole crisis with uh, trying to figure out how to actually make a difference instead of just having a good feel good story, a feel good story on paper. I'm not necessarily opposed to watching the cops sweat, you know, once in a while. So, well, I mean, you talked about uh, the conflict Major Colvin foresees or is, you know, dealing with on a day to day basis and another familiar face on the law enforcement side of things. Uh, Daniel's kind of caught up in a political maneuvering or yeah. some, some that like is that. you want to set imp- that out. That's it. <laughs> involving his uh, frayed relationship with his wife. Uh, he was basically led to believe that he would have kind of like a quid pro quo thing going on with uh, Commissioner Burrell that he could potentially get promoted to being major. Burrell said that he holds up his end of the bargain and kind of sends his name along to Mayor Royce, but it's all thrown into doubt when uh, the news comes out that his estranged wife is running against an uh, incumbent council member named Unetta Perkins, who's a favorite of Mayor Royce. And to Daniels's credit, he doesn't pressure Marla into backing off or anything. He kind of recognizes that he has to pay his dues to Marla and keep up appearances that they're still a happily married couple and that he's helping her on the campaign trail um, in, you know, kind of 
out of respect for all the work that she did for him to kind of support him in his career, even though she kind of left him out in the cold when they had uh, lots of success in the last season uh, with getting a whole new unit formed from the Sabatka case. So, I mean, she's kind of fucked up too. They got their issues. I mean, he's may or may not be living out of his office. Uh, right. And catching naps on really small <laughs> oh, uh, fuck. couches. Or <laughs> and he's a tall guy, too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that didn't seem comfortable. Um, also, I know you had mentioned some pretty neat stuff about uh, the incumbent that she'll be challenging, Marla. That is uh, Unetta Perkins. Well, uh, David Simon and Nina... Kostrov Noble mentioned in their great commentary that it was almost kind of an inside joke that she's an absent council member who doesn't show up for meetings just because we barely see her throughout the show until I guess the last episode of the season. So their subtle way of reinforcing yeah. that idea of ineffective politicians. They give. Let's just say they also give opportunities to politicians that they may find ineffective, but people like right. O'Malley uh, don't always take the uh, invitation. Yeah, they offered him a cameo. <laughs> they offered it, right? Yeah. Uh, speaking of O'Malley, you know, he uh, is kind of the. Uh, I mean, not kind of. He's he definitely is the uh, inspiration for one of our main characters this season, Tommy Carcetti. A compot like he part partially, you know. Carcetti is a composite of a bunch of different characters. <laughs> yes, but definitely you know, <laughs> Simon did have uh, <laughs> some things to say about O'Malley. Uh, we'll get into all that, of course. So, yeah, you think it's cool to move on to uh, talking some Burrell Carcetti? Uh, they meet at Werner's, which is a popular cafe. Unfortunately for, yeah, like you said, Pelicanos, um, you know, there's much more from the political side of things to be said. Uh, I mean, thankful that they that they went past this justice meeting because you know there's really definitely some magic that comes from uh, all the interactions we get to see at City Hall. But uh, just kind of a preliminary lunch meeting where Councilman Carcetti is attempting to uh, maybe be a little chummy with Burrell. Uh, right. Burrell epically trying to deflect from the whole uh, crime situation. Stating that it's the schools, the tax base is, uh, is leaving. Uh, Carcetti's really concerned they're losing, what, 12000 a year in population moving to the county. So that's bad news, especially, you know, the way the city and county is set up and kind of a unique uh, relationship there in Baltimore, which we talked about a bit previously. But uh, hard to recoup those lost taxes, and, and especially in a struggling city. But of course, crime is the main reason that right. he says everyone's getting out. Like when we talked about Comstat and so forth. So right, uh, but Burrell is, uh, you know, he's he's been around and he uh, he's no Jimmy, right? He he knows the chain of command. He knows the chain of command. It's a very uh, unfortunate theme that gets uh, 
brought back from season one where we see kind of like the ineffectiveness of nepotism reigning supreme with people kind of creating favor with each other to get into bigger positions of power. Um, but Karketi is not naive or ignorant and he kind of has his own shrewd strategic ways of getting what he wants. So after this meeting, which ends really abruptly, but, you know, kind of amicably, you know, Burrell kind of gives him a lecture on the importance of chain of command. But if that scene were to end there, we would probably assume like, oh, you know, it's tough luck. I didn't get exactly what I wanted out of this to try and get like a, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours type of relationship with Burrell. But it ended, you know, amicably enough. But the next time we see uh, Burrell and Rawls going into city, the city chambers for the quarterly budget review, of course, Carchetti pulls out all the stops and gets the media to bring all the cameras uh, to place widespread attention on a lot of the budgetary um, discrepancies and just crime that's that's running rampant throughout the city. So he's not going down without a fight and we're going to see him in his epic battle throughout the season to try and place a magnifying glass on a lot of the city's problems. Yeah, Carchetti is... Carcetti calling to reallocate the police funds. Yeah. Even back in 2004. Defunding? <laughs> defunding? Or reallocating the funds from Florida trips. Yeah. What can the Baltimore Police Department learn about policing at South Beach? <laughs> Talking about services, he does mention a story uh, about the fighting first district and thought it was pretty interesting to mention uh, the councilman that he's referencing. Please. I'm pretty sure that's that's what he mentioned. I mean, but basically Dominic DiPietro, uh, or DiPietro, I think as they called him in Baltimore, who was known, his nickname was Mimi, and he was a real um, city councilman, served in the first district in East Baltimore, uh, known as the unofficial mayor of Highland Town for 25 years. So I think 1966 to 91, and that's a real story. Apparently, he did grab Jimmy Carter by the back, like his pants seat, or I don't know what the old school term would be. But <laughs> he got invited to the White House to visit the, to meet the Pope. So uh, he went with the mayor, uh, William Donald Schaefer, who pretty much was the mayor for the decades of the 70s and 80s until you know, Kurt Smoke or before that. Clarence Burns, who you reminded me, technically wasn't <laughs> elected as the first black mayor, but took over after Schaefer became yeah. governor. But uh, yeah, Mimi DiPietro is uh, quite the character. So he saw himself as more of a populist because he you know, he just get things done no matter no matter what it took uh, for his constituents. So got to he took this cleaning his alleys out really seriously enough to potentially assault the the president um, <laughs> yeah i mean i know that carchetti alludes to him calling him a sob but i guess he just grabbed him or pushed past secret service to get to get to the jimmy yeah. carter so uh but i mean i don't know what the beef was all about because uh, every, yeah. pretty much everyone We're, in his district voted for you know jimmy carter it's not like he hated the guy i mean he was a democrat through and through uh, apparently so it's not like he liked reagan but uh, right. yeah, 
we're dropped right in the middle of that conversation. Oh, there's too much, too I much. No idea what's going on. Too much politics for me. I hope that scene in the diner is like the only scene about politics for yeah, the rest of the yeah. show. Yeah, it's, it basically is. I mean, you <laughs> know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, just like the first episode of each season, foray of characters kind of can be overwhelming. So right. if you're out there, you know, stick stick with this. I know we got a lot, <laughs> a lot going on circulating here. You know, we'll hit our we'll hit our we'll hit our stride. Just uh just as the wire does. Right. And speaking of so. speaking and of an overabundance of characters, do we ever see or hear from Drac again? <laughs> <laughs> no, I have no clue. I mean it kind of right. it kind of almost like speaks to the to the writing of the show that like uh the so kind of switching gears here for a second uh we're kind of like placed in the the MCU shoes where they're kind of like trying to get Cheese's voice on tape and trying to get to Stringer Bell by somehow getting through to Prop Joe and they know Drac is uh, uh, Prop Joe's nephew on his mom's side, which is apparently like a bigger deal than if it was on his dad's side. Um, and it kind of like speaks mm-hmm. to the whole uh, uh, prowess of the writing staff that we're placed in the same kind of boat that they are, where we're also like confused, like, wait, who is this person and how do they have connections to that? Uh, we also don't hear Cheese's voice throughout this whole episode, and we don't see Proposition Joe throughout this whole episode. So we're kind of firmly in their hands with how frustrating this all can be. And that kind of speaks to uh, David Simon and Nina K. Noble, because this was the first episode they had to do without Bob Colesbury's guidance to kind of stick with the cinematic template that had been laid out so thoroughly in the first two seasons. Um, Yeah, that's something I was going to also mention. We didn't at, uh, at the st- top of the show, you know, this was the first episode, or yeah, like you said, out Bob Colesbury. So tragically passed away just yeah, in February of 2004. So not, not long right. before they started shooting, right? So yeah. a lot of emotions, I imagine they uh, spread some of his ashes on set uh, right. prior to starting filming. So, but uh, I think more importantly, just an overarching theme or. Uh, a plot point or I know I got to get better at refining my film uh, terminology or my, you know, thematic uh, language here. But, uh, you know, he's close to getting promoted or if they're banking on the wrong guy, Drac, obviously incompetent as he is uh, being promoted, um, which is not something that, correct me if I'm wrong, Burrell is uh, necessarily... (laughs) keen on or you know but then it's of course noted that the wrong person often gets promoted in the police department so forth and you know reflecting on city government um so you know it's kind of maybe not the best uh best plan of action but that's what they got at the moment and they're up on his phone so uh, that's a you know that's a big step but yeah, he's done with Lavelle Mann, so that's another character that's kind of thrown in there. Uh, but yeah, Lavelle Mann, uh, a little more prudent, but Sidner, you know, he busts them, doing his undercover stuff. I mean, this yeah. guy is just, you know, he's all over the place as far as the undercover work. He's a brave guy, pretty confident. 
Well, we see him that he's learned a lot from uh, Bubbles' dressing Mm -hmm. down in the first season. (laughs) He learned from the right person as opposed to Herc's ridiculous white guy uh, undercover get up. Right. Yeah, so Jimmy's uh, burnt out like usual, and he's pretty uh, upset also on the fact that... uh, they let they let the last case get away as far as Stringer still being on the street and Avon Avon's on you know the the path to release and then he uh he makes a statement stating that if uh you know if if you don't if you don't look back on what you've done more or less uh you're just gonna do the same thing over and over which I thought also might tie into the theme of reform and, exactly um, yeah you know some obviously things that Colvin is cued in on. Also, Jimmy, no regard for uh, any sort of filing. Uh, yeah. like, you know, someone might have, you know, hey, as a, okay, I don't want to reveal too personally what I do, but, you know, I, I spent some time filing <laughs> in my life. So uh, it's like, hey, someone worked hard on that potentially, alphabetizing all that. That so was like, dumps a, everything on the table. That was like a visual nails on the chalkboard for you. Yeah, I was like, man, uh, okay, whatever. It's your investigation. That's your, uh, if you want to throw your baby around, you know. Yeah. Okay, maybe not. That's not a good analogy, but uh, <laughs> what else? Uh, what else we got going on here? Uh, how we doing? You know, we're going to be wrapping up here, but. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, actually, can I share a quote that I f- uh, found from Homicide? Uh, that Yeah, ca- Homicide quotes. Uh, the you know the book uh, you know Homicide: A Year on the Killing Streets by uh, David Simon. Uh, he wrote that before he was involved in the TV industry whatsoever, but um, specifically relates to Herc using the Shaft theme <laughs> in his CD yeah. player to kind of get amped for a lot of these drug busts. Uh, I should have mentioned it before. But that has kind of a real-life connection to this uh, cop named Terrence Patrick McClarney that's written extensively about in the book Homicide. So I'm just going to share a quote with you all that kind of uh, illustrates the mentality behind playing the music from Shaft while doing police work. So uh, Terrence Patrick McClarney recognized his obsession years ago. The day he was working a central district radio car and drew a blank, drew a bank alarm at Utah and North. Was there any greater feeling than racing up Pennsylvania Avenue with that blue strobe light show on top of the car and the theme from shaft blasting from a tape player on the front seat? Was there a bigger kick than charging past stunned patrons into the bank lobby? A 26-year-old centurion living by the big stick and the 38 bouncing on bouncing around on his belt. Never mind that the alarm was sounded in error. It was the sheer spectacle of the thing. In a world of gray, weightless equivocation, McClarney was a good man and a city besieged by bad men. What other job could offer anything as pure as that? So just further proof that they take real things from history and their own observation and keep recycling it and reforming it and re-sculpting it into different ways to fit the narrative of the show. So I thought that was a pretty interesting uh, little detail. And Thanks. I'm sure he was proud that it it, it had landed on uh, on Herc's shoulders to, to uh, <laughs> embody that <laughs> centurion spirit. Yeah, old 
McLarney. <laughs> Any thoughts in conclusion here? I know, uh, you know, we're getting back into the swing of it. So, uh, um, I mean, time after time, the, the title of the episode says it all. They're just gonna time after time. We're going to get screwed over by the same policies that we keep, uh, tacitly in, or, you know, unknowingly endorsing so we'll see how that plays out and how people are going to get punished for actually trying to change things for the better i'm excited to to talk more about it exactly i am as well thank you for sticking around with us uh we know this might be a little shorter, but hopefully we kept things succinct. We're trying to uh, condense things a, a little bit. We know we might have tried some of your patience with some of those two-hour-long episodes. We're <laughs> we're trying to uh, get to the get to the the real the real juice, the real meat of. Um, the analyses and whatnot, so we don't put you to sleep. We're trying to keep things lively. Anyway, um, I think that's a good place to end, right? You think we could do our little signature awkward send-off here there, buddy? Yeah, I'll do my best. Uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely excited. Excited to do that awkward send-off. More, more good content to come, uh, of course. Uh, not awkward right. content, of course. Exactly. Uh, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. You know, it's just the beginning of another another journey through uh, Baltimore. So, Right. So um, right. thank you for that. Uh, be sure to subscribe to us on any platform of your choosing. Oh, we're on Stitcher now. In case anybody oh, out yeah, there, yeah. yeah, we're up on the Stitcher podcast platform. Really exciting. If you want to check that out, subscribe to us. Um, we're on all the social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at The Gods Will Not Save You. What else you got for us, Jakob? Shoot us an email if you'd like, even. The Gods Will Not Save You at gmail.com. Interested <laughs> to hear? Interested to, to hear your opinions and uh, so forth and yeah, you want to give some shout outs to our guys? Yeah, let's let's shout out Andre Tesnis who did our incredible podcast logo. What a great guy, what a great logo. No, I agree. Times two. Um meaning, you know, I can uh raise the stakes there and also I like I agree with both of those statements. That's, <laughs> that's what that can mean, right? We did say awkward send off, right? Uh <laughs> At gotta least we stick can deliver on that. Uh, gotta stick to our word with yeah. that. Yeah. Shouts out to Mostar always coming through with the music, uh, original music. Check them out, Mostar.com. Uh, more of his catalog. You won't be disappointed. We'll see you next week for episode two.